Hey guys, greetings from Nixon, Missouri. Let me welcome you to Rock Church's midweek Bible study called Fuel. Life is hard. We need fuel from the Word of God, right? That's the premise of this whole thing. Um, <laughs> in the instable world that we live in right now, we need the stability of God's Word and the stability of the God that His Word reveals. Amen? And so we need fuel from the Word of God to stand strong and press on. And we're coming off now, it's been about a month, but we're coming off our summer break. And I have to say that I am fired up and ready to go. As many of you know, the break was time to correspond with our move to Missouri. And now that the move is done, I'm ready to pick up this timely study in the book of Revelation with you guys. So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and then we'll just get right into it. Lord God, we thank you again. I thank you for your word. I thank you for everybody watching and listening. Holy Spirit, I pray that your anointing would be upon this recording. I pray that your anointing would go forth into every single home of every person watching and listening. God, do what only you can do, God. Remove burdens, destroy yokes, set people free. Take away anxiety, depression, and fear, God, and give us joy unspeakable and full of glory in you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that we get to know you in this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been going through, like I said, the book of Revelation. The only book, by the way, of the Bible that the moment you open it up, it promises you a blessing just for going through it. And just by way of review, Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 reads, blessed. I like that. It starts off with blessed. Blessed or another way to say it, spiritually prosperous. That's the real prosperity gospel, right? Spiritually prosperous. Blessed or spiritually prosperous is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Everybody say, read, hear, and heed. And that's what we've been doing. We've been reading it out loud. Then we've been hearing it, listening intently. And then as the Holy Spirit leads us, we're getting the lessons, the teaching points, the takeaways from the, the study. And then we're applying it to our lives. And we've been using verse 119 as our divine outline. God has put right at the beginning of this book, a divine outline of this book to help us navigate this book. John is instructed in, in that verse to write down the things he has seen, which we find in chapter one is the vision of the glorified Christ. Then the things that are present tense, the things that are during John's time were the beginning of the church age. So the things that are have to do with all things church. Chapters 2 and 3 encompass seven letters to the seven churches. And that gives us our panorama picture of the church age. And then he is told to write the things that will occur hereafter, in the future. The things that will occur from the time period where the church age ends all the way until eternity. Now, as we get going tonight, let's take a moment and talk about the big picture. You see, it's important for us to stop every once in a while and talk about the big picture because there are so many intricate details and fascinating details in this book that it's easy to get lost in the weeds, so to speak. And what do I mean? I'm talking about there are so many fascinating things um, that we could spend years just studying on some of these little things like the two witnesses. There are people who have spent years just focusing on the two witnesses or focusing on the mark of the beast or focusing on the Antichrist or the false prophet, right? Or the woman in chapter 12. I mean, on and on it goes. And, and, and so it's important to occasionally stop and remind ourselves of the big picture. What's really going on in this book? What is even the purpose of this book? Why did the Holy Spirit give this book to his church? 
And really, we can boil it down to two main things to keep in mind to understand the big picture. The first main thing is one that we've been saying over and over again. It's this. Revelation is the unveiling of previously undisclosed truth regarding Jesus Christ. The word revelation means unveiling or uncovering. And, and in Revelation, we learn a lot about Jesus that we did not learn about in the Gospels and that we did not learn even in the epistles. In Revelation, we get to see Jesus in his full glory. We get to see him as the great king he really is. He is the king of all other kings on the earth. That's not just a cliche. He is the Lord over all the other lords. He is, in fact, God. So we see him in his mightiness. We see him in his holiness. And if there's ever any doubt or if anybody ever uh, approaches you and says that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God, you can take them to Revelation and take them to the many points that we'll highlight. The first one we've already gone over is in chapter one is he is attributed all the attributes of God. He is given worship. You know that the only if, if Jesus wasn't God and he was receiving worship, that would be what? blasphemy right but jesus receives worship at the same level as god the father all throughout this book so is powerful right that's the main thing that we need to remember revelation is an unveiling or uncovering of previously undisclosed truth concerning jesus the messiah then the second main thing that helps us see the big picture is this revelation describes in detail a yet future military operation we miss this a lot of times but there is a military operation that occurs in this book led by jesus himself that is a violent overthrow of satan and his forces this is a theme that i think it's missed a lot but when we get to chapter six which we're heading there when we get to chapter six we need to be sensitive to the fact that we are witnessing firsthand a divine military operation, literally, as it unfolds. Chapter 11, verse 15, is a main theme verse of the entire book, and it sums it up. After the seventh trumpet sounds, we hear loud voices in heaven, and they are saying something. They say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever that verse is describing the actual transition because there is a violent overthrow and there is a violent transfer of power where the kingdom of this world headed up by the god little g of this world satan is overthrown and it transitions into the kingdom of our god and of his Christ. As we progress through this book, we're going to see this overthrow of Satan and his forces. Now let's talk about that for a second. Why, are, why is Satan in control? Since the fall of mankind, Satan and his forces have exercised control. Adam gave away the authority that was delegated to him by God, and Satan has been operating in that authority. Remember, Jesus called him the God of this world. But the good news is that his reign of terror is soon going to come to an end. The untold misery he has inflicted has an ending point. That's good news for us right there. If you look at the world from the beginning of history all the way till now, all the pain and the suffering that is so hard for us to uh, uh, view with our own eyes and also to endure ourselves, uh, it all has its root cause. It can be traced to this one malignant being known as Satan, the adversary, Lucifer, this fallen angel. And there's coming a time where all that misery that he's inflicting, it's going to come to an end. And I want to encourage you right now, if you're in a season of suffering, I want you to know that you can hold on and stand strong because there is coming a time where Jesus is going to turn it around. Just don't lose heart. Amen. You will win if you don't quit. But this is good news right here. There's coming a time 
where Satan and his forces will be violently overthrown. So the book of Revelation is not all this doom and gloom, but it is good news in that sense, right? It's going to have some, there's going to be a rocky road on the way there, but in the end of the day, it's going to be all good, right? Now, a good way to put this in context, most people who follow Jesus understand that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross at Calvary some 2,000 years ago, right? And yet, we don't see that victory manifest in its fullness right now. And so a good way to put this whole thing in, in context is to say that at the cross, Jesus was victorious and Satan was defeated. But it's not until we get to Revelation that we finally see that victory fully manifested and fully enforced. And so that's where we're at. And that brings us to tonight's study. Tonight we're continuing our journey through that second section of the book, that second part of the divine outline, the things that are, present tense. We have established that the things that are cover the seven churches and historically cover this fascinating and unique period of time you and I were born into, known as the church age. You know, we don't want to miss that. Because we were born into this church age, and this is all we know, uh, we kind of just take it as normal. But we are living in a unique time. There has never been a time before like the church age. And there will never be a time again in the future. This is a unique time. And you and I get to live in it. And not only that, but we also may be living at the very end of the church age. At the time of the end, the time of the great convergence where world history catches up with Bible history where the world catches up with the word. So you and I, I just want to encourage you in 2020, we might think, man, we live in a really bad time. But actually, it might be as for such a time as this that God has chosen for you to be born into this world and to be a vessel used by him to help bring his kingdom into people's lives, to help pray people into this kingdom. Don't hang your head down because things are bad. Don't, don't give up because actually uh, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And it could be for such a time as this that God is calling you to do something for him. Now, so far, uh, as we're looking at the church age, we've looked at three churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. In Ephesus, we had some takeaways there very briefly. We learned that working hard for the sake of the gospel is important, and it's to be commended. That's something that they were commended for because they worked hard for Jesus, and that's a good value. We saw also that protecting yourself and those that you serve from false teaching and teachers is also important because there's a lot of falseness out there. There's a lot of phonies. Then there's a lot of deception. And so and from Ephesus, we learn that we need to be in the word so that we can test all things to see if it be of God or not. But the other takeaway, kind of in the negative sense that we also learned from Ephesus, is that it's easy to be doing good things for God and yet still let your love and passion for Jesus dissipate. It's important for us to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that this thing that we have going with Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him alone for salvation and we're born again into his kingdom, we're born into a love relationship. He loves us. We love him. If you remember when you first gave your heart and life to Christ. How much love did you have that he rescued you? He translated you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And so it's a love relationship. And love relationships need to be worked on. Amen. If you're married, you can say amen. If you have any kind of relationship, you know that for it to be all it's meant to be, it needs to be worked on. And so this love relationship, Jesus tells us, needs to be made our top priority. In all that we do. And so we learn that if we have drifted from that first love, Jesus simply wants us to repent. In other words, change our minds and then make changes accordingly. Right? Now, 
we have a well-known, beautiful illustration right from Scripture of how this looks in, in real life. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Backdrop, Jesus has been out and about ministering. He had just shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. And now he turns into the village of Bethany, a, a village less than two miles from Jerusalem, where his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And so he turns in there. Let's pick up the story starting in verse 38. It reads, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Can anybody besides me relate to Martha? Martha was distracted. She was busy, right? And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Can you imagine the chutzpah of Martha? <laughs> do you know somebody like Martha? Are you somebody like Martha? Not only... Are you working hard, but you want Jesus to straighten out the people that aren't working hard? <laughs> he said, she says, then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her paraphrase not only am i not going to tell mary to get up and help you i'm going to tell you to go be like mary right she's got it right you you kind of getting it backwards the lesson is clear jesus is more concerned with our hearts amen and our relationship with him he knows what we need and what we need is time with him and a huge takeaway especially for for those of you who are doers Serving should never come at the expense of your relationship with Jesus, but it should come out of the overflow of that relationship. When it doesn't, we get things out of order and things go south very quickly. Because what ends up happening is when we minister out of the overflow of our relationship, our tank is full. That's why we do this thing called fuel. Fuel is, is specifically designed for us to fuel up on the word of God so that we can take that and give us the strength to get through our lives and to be a blessing to others. But if we receive that infilling, that fueling up, and then we go and we serve, we get depleted. Now, if we don't cultivate that relationship, we'll continue to try and serve but we won't be getting our tank filled. And then we're operating from an empty tank. And that gets ugly quick. That's where you burn out. That's where you lose your joy. That's where you start getting into fights and bickering with people when you're supposed to be serving. So the message to us from Ephesus is to keep your love for Jesus burning strongly. And we go over this all the time. So just by way of review rapid fire the things that you can do to keep that love fire going and keep that tank filled up is spending time with jesus right spending time in his word in worship in prayer and fellowship with other like-minded believers that's the power for right there word worship prayer and fellowship with other like-minded believers there's a question out there that that goes it's a rhetorical question it says how do you spell love and then the answer is spelled out t-i-m-e it's not complicated we need to set aside time to spend with jesus every day so that's ephesus then of course the next church was smyrna this church was in a different situation it was under fire they were going through persecution and they were about to go through some heavy persecution and Jesus didn't have anything negative to say to them. He just encouraged them to hold on no matter what happens. And I just want to encourage you, no matter what you're going through right now, hang in with Jesus. In the end, it will all 
be worth it. And Smyrna, we got two takeaways, and it was this. Number one, be prepared to stick with Jesus no matter the challenges that may come from that decision. We live in America. We're free. It's built into our culture and our civilization that we have the right to worship God how we see fit. Uh, However, as 2020 proves, the world can change in a blink of an eye, and we should never take that freedom for granted. And we should always have in our mind the fact that we are going to decide that whether it is legal or illegal to serve Jesus, we're going to serve him regardless. So that was takeaway number one. And then takeaway two was Don't forget about the persecuted church. We're not the persecuted church. We have some persecutions and we have some indications that um, there could be more coming uh, down the horizon. But there are some serious persecuted believers out there. Reports that we're hearing out of China. Some reports we're hearing out of certain parts of Africa. Reports we're hearing in the Middle East. God is moving and yet there is a huge crackdown in India. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. This is something that hits me between the eyes. Something I need to build into my walk with God is I need to not forget about the persecuted church. We need to think about what we would want other believers to be doing for us if we were the ones going through it. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 says it clearly. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. It says, Remember those in prison and being mistreated as if you were in prison with them and, watch this, undergoing their torture yourselves. So remember from Smyrna, let's not forget our persecuted brothers and sisters. Now, the last time we were together, we covered the church at Pergamum. That's the third church of Revelation. There were a couple things that we really needed to take to heart from that church. Remember, when we read that message, it starts off by Jesus telling the church that he knew where they dwelt. He saw them. He saw what they were going through. They were in a very difficult location. He called it the place where Satan had his throne. And we took some time to talk about the fact that God sees you and he knows what you're going through and he cares deeply about it. Sometimes we feel like we're going through it alone. Sometimes we think, where's God at in in this? It seems like he is aloof, right? Uh, But the word of God tells us that he cares very deeply about what we're going through. Everything. Nothing is petty to him. And, And the word of God tells us that one of the names that we are to know the Holy Spirit by is the comforter. And so if you're suffering right now, let me encourage you, allow yourself And that's important because it's an act of your own will. Allow yourself to be comforted by God, to receive his comfort in the midst of your suffering. God sees you. God cares deeply about what you're going through. And God wants to comfort you. Listen to this quote by Jody Erickson Tata. If you know Jody Erickson Tata, you know she has reason to understand about suffering. She was paralyzed as a teenager and she served God heartily for many years she says this you don't have to be alone in your hurt comfort is yours joy is an option and it's all been made possible by your savior he went without comfort so you might have it he postponed joy so you might share in it he willingly chose isolation so you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow this is a word for somebody right now receive God's comfort. Let him comfort you. Amen. Now we also saw that the name of the church Pergamum set the theme for the letter. Pergamum means thoroughly married. And the theme was all about marriage. And so the takeaway was that as the bride of Christ, we should be thoroughly married or thoroughly joined to him and be faithful to him the way that we want our spouses to be faithful to us and to aggressively go after those things that we have in our lives that are not pleasing to God. Now that's Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Now tonight we're going to dig in the letter into the letter to the church at Thyatira. So go ahead now and turn, if you would, to chapter 2 of Revelation. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 29. And it reads, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we get ready to break this down, I want to introduce to you something new. Something that's going to apply to the other three churches, but we didn't talk about it yet. And it's going to be something we call the fourth level of application for these letters to these churches. If you've been watching these sessions, you know we've been using three levels of application to understand. It's like three lenses to understand how these letters can be applied. You remember the first level of application is what's called the local level. That means that the seven churches mentioned were seven real churches. In first century Tur Turkey, there wasn't figurative or allegorical. They were real churches and each letter addressed situations that were happening locally there at each of these particular churches. The second level of application is called the universal level. That means that each letter has things that apply to every single church throughout history. In other words, these letters were relevant in the first century, but they were also relevant during the Middle Ages, and they are just as relevant now to the 21st century church in America. That's the universal level of application, and we would do well to hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. Now, the third level of application is the personal level. This is where the rubber meets the road for us individual. I think we all understand this. As we have seen, there are messages that are directly applicable to each one of us in each one of these letters. That's why Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's a personal invitation to apply something to our lives. And we have ears, and we want to hear what the Spirit is saying and how it applies to us directly. So we've been looking at each letter through these three lenses, but tonight I want to introduce you to a fascinating fourth level of ap application. It is very interesting. We're going to call, like I said, this fourth level of application, we're going to call it the prophetic level. So we have the local, universal, personal, and now we have the prophetic level of application. And what that means is this. There are many Bible scholars and teachers who have made an interesting observation when studying this section of the Bible. They have observed that if you read these seven letters in order, you're going to see something. You're going to see that they lay out the history of the church, starting from the time of the apostles all the way up until the end. It's like Jesus prophetically gave John the characteristics of his church from beginning to end, starting with John's generation, going all the way to ours and maybe beyond, or maybe it ends with ours, right? But either way, all the way to the end of the church age. Now, some teachers teach this as fact, okay? And some teach it as something interesting to take note of, but leave it up to the listener. 
That's the approach I take. I personally find it fascinating, and I think it makes sense. But I would not be dogmatic about it. It does, however, give some interesting insight if it's correct. And not only that, but what's really interesting is that if you try to put the letters in any other order, it won't work. Now, again, by this theory, these letters outline church history from beginning to end. So to show you what I mean, let's take a brief look with this fourth lens, this fourth level of application, starting with Ephesus. According to this theory, since Ephesus is up first, that makes Ephesus the apostolic church, the church that the apostles gave birth to. This is the church that started on the day of Pentecost, and it went on to about 100 AD. It started off with a fiery love for Jesus, right? But began to slip into being strictly works-based. We see that in the book of Acts, clearly. Now, the second church that we've already gone over, the next church is Smyrna. Smyrna is the martyr church. If you look at history, the martyr church goes from 100 AD to 312 AD. This was a period of intense persecution in the history of the church. During this period, there were 10 Roman emperors that launched massive attacks against the church. And it was during this time of intense persecution that the church, that's the church that we all kind of (coughs) glorify, excuse me. It's remembered as the church's purest time, the time that Christianity really took root in the world. Then the next church, as history goes on, it's Pergamos, which in church history is known as the compromising church. This is where things start to go south with the church as a, as a, global body it starts in 312 a.d and it lasts to 600 a.d and if you know your history you know in 312 the emperor constantine converted to christianity and made it illegal to persecute christians it looks good on the surface but this was a slippery slope this was the beginning of the church compromising with the world j Vern mcgee puts it like this constantine noticed that Christians were not enlisting in anyone's army, realizing that if he converted to Christianity, he would have access to a potential infusion of new troops. He became a Christian and J. Vern McGee doesn't think his conversion was legitimate. And the Christians responded by siding with him, but it would turn out to be an unmitigated disaster as a result of Constantine's edict of toleration, which forbade persecution of Christians Christianity became the official religion of Rome. In fact, soon all Roman babies would be legally required to be baptized into the Christian faith. Yes, the Christians were now in power, but understanding the political expediency of concession, Constantine compromised with the pagan priests and traditions that permeated Rome. I feel your pain, he said. Let's find common ground. Let's meet halfway. And so a marriage took place. Remember, Pergamum is about marriage. So a marriage took place that was perhaps most clearly illustrated by the coin issued shortly thereafter. Christian symbols were stamped on one side of the coin and pagan symbols on the other. From A.D. 313 to A.D. 600, church and state worked together as a political power. And as a result, the church began a downward spiral from which she has yet to recover. This is an interesting part of our history. So that's the prophetic levels of application. From this point on, we're going to add this level to each church. And we're just going to see if the model fits. Now. Let's go back to Thyatira. Thyatira, as we're going to see, is the inappropriately tolerant church. The inappropriately tolerant church. Do you know that there is a tolerance that Jesus does not tolerate? That almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? But there is a tolerance that Jesus doesn't tolerate. Tolerance is all throughout The Bible, when it comes to how we're supposed to bear with one another, we're supposed to be tolerant of each other's faults and love each other regardless. We're supposed to be tolerant and non-judgmental. But the tolerance that Jesus will not tolerate is 
tolerating things that violate his word. Amen. And that's what this theme of this letter is going to be all about. So let's break it down. Remember, we looked at these seven elements that we used to break it down. And the first one is the name of the church, Thyatira. Let's talk about Thyatira. Thyatira was located in a very beautiful valley. Remember, we're in the country of Turkey. Um, It's to the south and east of Pergamum, and it's to the northeast of Smyrna. Thyatira is famous for the dye that is produced there. And as a matter of fact, Lydia, who is the first recorded convert to Christ in Europe, she was originally from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple fabrics. However, what's interesting right off the bat is that it's the least known, least impressive, and the least important city in the natural sense when you compare it to the other cities, the other six churches of Revelation, okay? And yet, if you know, when we just read that, that was a long passage that we read about Thyatira. It's the longest letter of all seven. And why? Something is up at this church. And it's something very significant. And we're going to get an idea about it right now as we look at the title of Christ in this letter. Title of Christ. This is Jesus' description of himself to the Thyatirans. It's threefold. He calls himself, and each one of these is strong, by the way. The Son of God, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burning bronze. This is the strongest description of himself in any of the letters. And this tells us this is a very serious letter. Notice as he uses the term son of God and not son of man. He is immediately identifying himself as the omnipotent God. And then he says he has eyes like a flame of fire. The eyes represent the omniscience of God. Omniscience just means God is all knowing and he sees everything that happens everywhere. And then the flame of fire means that not only does he see it, but he examines it to see if it holds up as being good and true. Then finally, he says his feet are like burning bronze. Bronze in the Bible speaks of judgment. The fact that it is his feet speaks to the fact that he cannot walk amongst wickedness. Remember, Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, the seven churches, right? And he's telling us that he cannot walk amongst wickedness and eventually he will move against it. This is a very strong letter, but first he's going to tell them the things they're doing well. And they're doing a lot of good things. His commendation, he says, I know your deeds, I know your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. Wow, some good things. And that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. So, they're working hard, they're showing love, they're sticking with it when things got tough. And they were getting better in those areas. They're better now at them when they first began. But there was a very serious piece of the puzzle that had become a vulnerability. And we need to pay attention to this because it's in a vul- vulnerability that you and I have. I see my, myself, this is a, a vulnerability for me personally. Let's look at his concern. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. The one that calls herself a prophetess, teaches and leads Jesus, his bond servants astray, right? He says, you tolerate, she's, she's leading these people astray, letting them, uh, leading them to commit acts of immorality. And we're talking about spiritual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus said he gave this particular woman time to repent, but she would not. All right, and he calls her Jezebel. That's enough right there. And so we have another reference to the Old Testament. And it's the key to his message here, this woman, Jezebel. So let's talk about Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbal. Ethbal. Ethbal was the king of the Sidonians. And she worshipped Baal, false god, and Asherah. And she led her husband, who was an Israelite, Ahab, astray. He, he worshiped the same that she did. And she is the one who's responsible, watch this now, for institutionalizing Baal worship in Israel. Okay? Balaam 
got the children of Israel to compromise their relationship with God by getting them to participate in Baal worship. But Jezebel takes it to a whole other level. She basically turns the nation completely to Baal. It would be like if we were, uh, as America, a 100% Christian nation, and then these leaders came in and turned us into another religion. That's what Jezebel did to Israel. As Yahweh was supposed to be the center of their life in everything, Jezebel made Baal the center of everything. So you have these two gods now, one being the true God and one being this demonically backed God, uh, uh, center stage. And in Israel at this time, people could still worship Yahweh, but Baal was considered equal, if not better. And people like to worship Baal, honestly, because sin was institutionalized in Baal worship. And you could go to temple and there were temple prostitutes there, for an example. Okay, so Baal worship now takes root in Israel. Eventually, the people would have to choose who they would serve, Baal or Yahweh. And if you know the story, there's a showdown at Mount Carmel and Elijah shows that Yahweh is the true God and the people do thankfully turn back to him. But the takeaway there is Jezebel is bad news, all caps, right? She's bad news, all caps. And she leads many Israelites down a horrible path. So it's significant that Jesus references her here. See, there was a woman in this church at Thyatira who called herself a prophetess. Just because somebody calls themselves a prophet or a prophetess doesn't mean that they are, right? We're supposed to test the spirits. We're not supposed to despise prophecy. Prophecy is a gift of the spirit given to the church for edification. But we're supposed to test. She called herself a prophetess, but she was a false prophetess who was trying to make, watch this, pagan practices part of the church. Make pagan practices totally acceptable. Now look at this closely. Jesus in this letter is going to move in judgment. But what is causing this? What is causing them to allow this to happen. And this is what I was saying. I feel vulnerable. I don't feel vulnerable to allow pagan practices to come into the church. But what I feel vulnerable as a person sometimes is to tolerate things that Jesus says not to tolerate. It's not that this false prophetess has shown up there. Look at it. He says you tolerate that woman Jezebel. False teachers are going to arise, but how is the church going to handle it? Are they going to oppose it or are they, for the sake of peace, just going to tolerate it? Can you see what I'm saying here? Why this is I'm talking about in our lives personally. What do we know that's not right that we just tolerate and we allow it into our life? Going back to the church example. Imagine if we here at Rock Church had somebody who, number one, didn't believe that Jesus was God. Who didn't believe that you had to be forgiven of your sins. Who didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that person believed that all religions led to God. Imagine if we let that person lead a Bible study because we didn't want to have a confrontation. That's what's happening here. On one hand, we need to be loving and tolerant people and we need to never elevate ourselves as being better than anybody else. But we can never, even in the name of love, tolerate things that Jesus says is intolerable. Why? Because people's eternity hangs in the balance. Amen? There was a teacher who was in evangelical circles and he... Um, came out, of course, saying that um, hell is, is, is not permanent, right? And he began to deny certain tenets of the faith, and he left the faith, so to speak. And he made a statement that it's time for us to stop being hung up with these ancient manuscripts and basically get with the program. 
There are people who would tolerate that kind of talk because he was a charismatic, influential speaker. That's what we need to be on guard against. This woman referred to as Jezebel, as we will see, she was leading people to hell. And Jesus died so people don't have to go to hell. Amen? And so Jesus does not want us to be passive when that's going on. Now, the next element is exhortation. Jesus in some time past, and it doesn't tell us how, but he warned her, maybe through a prophet there, that she needed to repent. Also, there's some strong words there talking about the death of Jezebel's children. Uh, it's important to understand that when you read that, it's talking about those who follow her ways, those who eat from that tree and implement that doctrine into their lives, they're showing they're not truly Christian. And they're ending up, they're going to end up suffering by being eternally away from the presence of God. This is why this letter is so strong. Jesus wants leaders in his church to protect his flock. And I can tell you, uh, at Rock Church, we will stick with the word of God. Amen? Um, culture will always put pressure on us. Whatever the hot button topic is for that particular period of time in history. We have our own unique set of cultural pressure demanding us to change our teaching. But we will never do that. Amen? We will stick with the word of God. Why? Because we're answerable to God. That's number one. We're answerable to God and we're accountable for the souls of people that we have the privilege to share God's word with. And so we don't have the right to tinker with his word. Amen. It's his word. Now it goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Here's our built in pause. As I read and I meditate on this, I have to ask myself the question. What am I tolerating that Jesus says I should not be tolerating? Where am I being passive when I need to be active? What are you tolerating? Maybe you're tolerating something now that when you first came to Christ, you knew was wrong and you drove it out of your life and now you've let it back in. This passage convicts me, right? And that's a good thing. Amen. And we need to let it convict us so, so that we make change. Remember, conviction is never condemnation. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn you. Con condemnation is of the devil. Okay. But conviction is of the Holy Spirit. Now, overcomers promise. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Wow, what an amazing promise. Look at this. It was promised to Jesus that he would have authority over the nations. And in the book of Psalms, that's what he was quoting there. Chapter two, we see that the Messiah will rule during the millennium. With a rod of iron. That means that God's law is going to be in effect. Okay. But it also says here. He's going to delegate that authority to you and me. We're going to rule and reign with him during the millennium. Wow. What a glorious future we have. Now. Let's close by looking at. The four levels of application. Local level is pretty clear. Um, we already hit it really hard actually. First century Turkey. The church in Thyatira was tolerating a false prophet to basically allowing her to act like Jezebel and have influence in her church to inch in their church to introduce pagan worship alongside worship of Jesus as if they were equal. The universal level, every church throughout history has had to balance love and truth. You must walk in love. Or you're not a true representative of Christ. But you must not compromise on truth either. Why? 
We already said it. People's eternities are hanging in the balance. And so we are accountable to God to stake to his word. Tolerance is a good thing when it comes to tolerating and being patient with other people's flaws. That's the tolerance that Jesus wants. But the tolerance that Jesus won't tolerate is a compromise on his truth that could end up sending, sentencing somebody to a Christless eternity. Now, the personal level. What compromise have we made with the world? What do we now tolerate in our own personal lives that we know is opposed to the word of God? And all this is, is it, to me, it's almost like a checkup when you go to the doctor and it highlights something. Maybe we drift and we don't even realize, but if we have gotten apathetic in this area, we just need to repent and catch fire for Christ again and drive out those things that we've allowed, that we've been apathetic towards. And now the fourth level of application, the prophetic level. Which church in history is this? This would be the medieval church or the church of the dark ages, the Catholic church of that time. That is the church that introduced pagan practices into Christianity. It started around uh, 590 AD and was dominant all the way up to 1500 AD. Now, this church is still in existence and it, do, it, and it varies. This is important for us to get to as we um, interact with Catholics who many are our brothers and sisters, okay? So I want to say this up front. I'm not Catholic bashing, okay? I actually was raised Catholic. I've learned a lot of important things before I clearly heard and understood the gospel. And, and the churches in the Catholic church run across a spectrum, okay? This is the, the main thing to talk about when we talk about Catholicism. There are some Catholic churches that are as sound in doctrine and as in love for Jesus as any other Protestant or evangelical, quote unquote, church. Okay, they're out. There are plenty of them out there. I know people that are are are, are had a born again, spirit filled experience in the Catholic Church, and they were Catholics, and then they went to another Catholic church, and it was dead as a doornail. They had Mary worship. They had praying with the saints. Okay, those are the pagan practices that are not biblical, okay? That's the introduction where um, this church compromised with the world, okay? I like the way Bible commentator John Corson puts it. He says, presently there are excellent Catholic churches and wonderful Catholic pastors. There are those who have not bought into the deception of Jezebel. There are substantial segments of the Catholic church who love Jesus Christ and are not into the hocus-pocus imagery and idolatry that keep people away from knowing the Lord personally. On the other hand, much of the Catholic Church still has the Thyatira mentality. But guess what? Our next church is going to be the Protestant Church. And just as much of the Protestant Church is deader than a doornail. And that we're going to see in the next chapter. So if you're a Protestant and you think we're bashing Catholics, get ready because Protestants, we're going to take our medicine next. Okay? <laughs> and here's the end of the day. Guess what? Jesus loves us all. And he wants us all walking in truth, being alive and on fire for him. And so that's a good place for us to wrap it up here.